Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has way too many mugs. And if this was a statement that resonates with you, I, I see you there nodding your head. If this makes you feel truly seen, <laughs> then I know you're an avid thrifter like Dustin and me because this, this is how mugs come into your life in an excessive way. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 135. Today's special guest is Anna, aka the Witch of Witchwood. She's going to tell us about secondhand shopping and the thrift industry in Poland, where she has lived for more than a decade. Not to spoil the whole thing for you, although I guess I am now. Overall, the secondhand industry, as in the flow of secondhand items from original owners to their next home is much different than the United States. And I suspect it is because it has been corporatized here. You give it a listen. You tell me. You be the judge when she tells you all about it. I also think there are some really great lessons for best practices to be learned and adapted to the way secondhand and rehoming works here in the United States. So give it a listen. Before that, I'm going to give you the whole rundown on the recent and, in my opinion, very exciting lawsuit against H&M for greenwashing. But first, I have to address a recent review Close Horse received on Apple Podcasts. Not because I'm angry at that person or that I think their opinion is more or less valuable than anyone else's, but rather because what they don't like about Close Horse is unfortunately, or fortunately, an intentional choice on my part, and it's not going to change. The review said basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, the show is good, thank you, but the episodes are too long, so I stopped listening. The podcast needs more editing. If you know me IRL, then you know I'm a person who is constantly in motion, constantly doing this or that with very little downtime. Every moment of my life, especially right now, is already spoken for by work or chores or personal relationships, sometimes sleeping and eating. Seriously, like sometimes a friend will text me about a personal crisis they're having and I get so anxious about how I'm going to help them and do all the other things that I'm supposed to do that I like I have to sit down for a minute and figure out how I'm going to make it work. Time is just so precious to me. I've always been a whirling dervish. My brain works so much faster than my body, which also means I'm regularly running into walls. Just did that about five minutes ago. I'm always tripping or breaking things. And when I was a kid, my mom would call me flighty. But that wasn't the right term at all because flighty describes silliness, shallowness, lack of deep thought or care about something. And I've always been the opposite, always thinking the whole thing through to the end, wanting to hear the whole story. The whole story is very important to me, even when it takes time that I feel like I don't have. And so when I started making Clothes Horse, I knew that it wouldn't be a short podcast. There are plenty of those out there, even in the world of sustainability and slow fashion, etc., and I knew that I could never limit myself to 30 minutes. And this is my podcast, right? This is, this is more than me just speaking into a microphone every week. This is a very personal, creative project for me. This is me you're getting in every episode. 
and a, a short format, it isn't me. I want to tell the whole story. I want to hear my guests' whole stories. And I want you to know the whole story to the best of my ability. And to be honest, I love a long podcast. My favorite soundtrack for housework and cooking is Molly McAleer's Mother May I Sleep With podcast. It's about Lifetime movies, and I love it. It's like the highlight of my Sunday. Most episodes of that show range from two to four hours. You know, do I do I listen to an entire episode in one day? No, two to four hours is a long time. It usually takes me a few days to get through it. And you know what? I'm always kind of sad when it's over. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how many more days until Sunday when I can start all over again? You know, I receive a lot of emails every week from sustainability experts and entrepreneurs who want to be on Close Horse, probably because they've never listened to an episode, but see it has a following and, you know, they want some free marketing. And I get that. That's that's business, right? I I rarely choose to interview those potential guests because I know that they are already having their voices heard at work, on other shows, on social media, blogs, etc. I want Close Horse to be a platform for people who don't get heard very often. I am a person who, before Close Horse, was rarely heard by anyone. And I have seen the huge impact that being heard has had on my life, motivating me to work harder and make more change and feel as though my life has meaning. And I have heard from all of you that hearing me has motivated and inspired you. So it's important to me that all of the guests on Close Horse are given the space to say everything they want to say, to tell the whole story according to them. And you know what? In many cases, that's just not going to be a short episode. And I'm not going to edit out something that a guest thinks is important. Once again, time is so precious but so is all this time with every guest that comes on this show. So yeah, Close Horse episodes are long and they will continue to be long. I'm playing around with other short format sources of info like reels, etc. But as one person with no extra time, it's definitely going to be a slow process. It'll come in time. But, but guess what? I do not expect you to listen to an entire episode in one day or sitting. If you are great. I can't believe you want to listen to me talk for that much time. And I'm incredibly honored. But I actually engineer on purpose, very intentionally, these episodes to be listened to in three to four segments. Ever notice how each episode has an intro story, the interview and an outro story? Even the ads are very strategically placed to give you a pause point so you can move on to the next part of your day. You know, one of the only good pieces of advice my mom ever gave me was not everyone will like you. I don't expect everyone to like listening to this show or listening to me talk for so long every week. But if you're here listening right now, I know you care about our planet and its people. So if you're looking for a shorter podcast, drop me a DM and I'll send you some suggestions. But Clothes Horse will be remaining as it is. And as always, I'm so grateful to have your time.
Let's take a moment to thank a new supporter of Close Horse, Athletic Greens. They have a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because it's important that I feel as healthy and energized as possible. If I'm going to be able to do all the stuff I need to do in a given day, from working my day job to creating Close Horse to reading my ever-growing mountain of books, this means I need a supplement that fits into my life easily and is actually enjoyable to take. I've taken some very unenjoyable supplements. For a while, it seemed like half my suitcase for every business trip was just bottles of vitamins and AG1 has changed my life because it only takes up a tiny, tiny bit of space in my bag and I really enjoy taking it. Who says that about a supplement? I have never said that before, but I mean it. I've been on it for a few months now, and I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical with a hint of vanilla taste that I actually look forward to each morning. I'm I'm serious. I, I'm excited to drink it in the morning. So you're probably asking, like, what is this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all of the things you care about. It's very lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, or only Taco Bell, AG1 fits for you. It also costs you less than $3 a day. It's way cheaper, trust me, I did the math, than getting all of the different supplements yourself, which I appreciate as a very thrifty person. I also love that I'm skipping all of the plastic packaging ways for all of the supplements I was taking in the past. So many containers. I am not an athlete. When I do work out, it's in very uncool pajamas. But AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits for me. It's one thing I can do every single day to take great care of myself. For every purchase, Athletic Greens donates to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the United States. In 2020 alone, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. My other vitamins weren't doing anything for anybody else except filling up my suitcase. Right now is a great time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. Shake it up and enjoy it. There's no need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Seriously, the first thing I do every morning, well, first I feed the cats, but then I mix up my scoop of of AG1 with some water. I shake it up and I sit on the couch and drink it while I listen to NPR and it is delightful. To make it easy, because I know you're so jealous, you want to try this now, Athletic Greens is going to offer you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash clotheshorse. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash clotheshorse to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This week, we learned that H&M, 
Oh, H&M, is being sued for, quote, misleading sustainability marketing and incredibly scammy manipulated product scorecards. In the proposed class action complaint that she filed in a New York federal court on July 22nd, plaintiff Chelsea Commodore claims that H&M is, quote, taking advantage of consumers' interest in sustainability and products that, quote, do not harm the environment. Yes, H&M has been greenwashing like it's going out of style. It is something all of us in the slow fashion movement have been yelling about for years. Commodore is hoping to not only receive damages for this so-called sustainable product she was sold by H&M, but also to get the court to certify her proposed class action, which would allow other customers, perhaps you or someone you know, who have purchased H&M products that contained a sustainability profile or a sustainability misrepresentation to join in on the action. So if you've bought anything from one of these conscious collections in the last few years, you could be a part of this. This could be a major, I mean like all caps, major game changer in the world of fast fashion, greenwashing, marketing around environmental and ethical issues as a whole, just on and on, so many ripple effects here. This case is a really big deal. How did it get to this point, specifically with H&M? H&M being dragged into court for greenwashing. We know that greenwashing is using false claims of sustainability as a marketing tool to drive sales. We also know that fast fashion can never be truly sustainable because it is a model of doing business that relies on selling us as much stuff as possible as often as possible. Overconsumption and overproduction is the exact opposite of sustainable, of sustainability, which is why Fast fashion is driven to greenwashing. So we know that H&M is a fast fashion brand and always has been. How did it specifically become so caught up in greenwashing? This was something I was thinking about last week. Like, what was the path there? You know, for years, as a person working within the fast fashion industry, H&M has been a cautionary tale. It was once one of the global leaders in fast fashion. When H&M began to open in the United States, consumers were like so excited. They would line up around the block outside stores on opening day and for weeks afterward. I remember when an H&M opened in downtown Portland, you had to wait in line every day to get into the store all day long for like the first three months. I mean, people were so excited. Sure, H&M was inexpensive and trendy, just like Forever 21, but it had a bit of like a style cachet as fashion bloggers and magazines alike really embraced the brand. Like so much, so much free marketing from the fashion press. But by around 2015, it saw its sales slow down, like a lot of fast fashion retailers, as more players like Zara, Fashion Nova, and later Shein emerged and picked up more market share. And I mean, to be honest, they were making clothes even faster and cheaper than H&M. It just, H&M couldn't keep up. So by 2018, buying offices all over the world were collectively, including the one I was working in, tisk tisking 
about the latest news from H&M, and it was, it was shocking. H&M had more than $4 billion, that's with a B, dollars in unsold inventory that it was just sitting on. The result of a perfect storm, or imperfect storm, I suppose, of picking the wrong product, making too much of it, and opening too many stores, and just generally not not being as popular as it once was. At the time, in 2018, I was the director of merchandising for a small retail startup in the Pacific Northwest, and the CFO, a lovely guy, sent me a story from Business Insider about H&M's very horrible excess inventory situation, and the only thing in the email other than link from him was the statement, please don't ever let this happen to us. I, I cannot emphasize enough how an inventory issue of that scale or even just of that proportion to a business's overall sales would destroy many companies. It's really a testament to the sheer volume of cash flowing into H&M's coffers every day that $4 billion in unsold and probably unsellable inventory wouldn't drive it into bankruptcy. These troubles with all of this inventory, I mean, obviously, we're talking mountains of clothing here. They're not going to fix themselves overnight. These inventory troubles continued into 2019. And by 2020, the world knew that H&M was burning a lot of inventory, enough to fuel a power plant outside of Stockholm. The, The power plant also burned coal, but burned clothes when available. Sales continued to decline that year in 2020, and that trajectory continued into 2021. Now, the thing is, there is no company on this planet, especially an enormous publicly traded company like H&M, that would continue to let this kind of bad fiscal performance slide. It means the someone or often someone's will lose their jobs. And in 2020, the CEO was replaced with Helena Helmerson, a longtime H&M employee who had most recently been, drumroll please, or da-da-da-da, how about some fanfare there, the company's sustainability manager. This was a very calculated decision, I can assure you. Helmerson saw the writing on the wall. No one cared about H&M as a fashion brand. It had lost all appeal in terms of style and trendiness. No one was looking at it as the place to shop. There weren't whole blog posts and editorial is in nylon about how great H&M was. No one was looking at it as a place to shop. It couldn't compete with more trendy, cheap brands like Shein. It wasn't fancy enough to be anthropology. It wasn't knockoff-friendly like Zara, who had kind of replaced H&M's role in the world, at least for a few years there. And H&M, despite having clothes for the entire family, didn't have that family-friendly, fun energy like Old Navy H&M really didn't have an identity as a brand. It had simply become a place to buy cheap stuff. That isn't a brand identity that can save a business. It, it needed its own thing. Something that would get customers in the door over and over again. Something that would bring in a lot of media coverage. And new CEO Helmerson knew just what would work. 
H&M could make itself relevant via claims of sustainability and an endless parade of so-called conscious collections. Did it work? Kinda. Sales saw some recovery, but Helmerson was feeling so optimistic about this new sustainability direction that she announced in February of this year that the company would double its sales by 2030. Bold claim! For a company that had little cachet in the past seven years, had burned billions of dollars worth of unsold product, with even its cooler brands like Cause and in other stories, seeing a slowdown. Here's the thing about H&M and every other fast fashion brand out there selling you a big helping of greenwashing every day. None of these brands can be sustainable at the level they are producing. You already know that. You wouldn't be here listening otherwise, right? No miracle fabric, no matter what they tell us, will ever allow us to shop the way we have in the fast fashion era. And furthermore, H&M and all of these fast fashion brands will never, ever be sustainable. Even if they do master circularity within their supply chains, even if they do reduce all the water and change the way they dye clothes, if they aren't paying workers a living wage, they're not sustainable. And spoiler, H&M, among all of these other fast fashion brands, are not paying their workers. We know that fast fashion is cutthroat about pricing and trends, and these brands and retailers love to copy one another. Greenwashing was already picking up momentum by 2020, but H&M's steady flow of media coverage, social media posts, and these conscious collections, they actually influenced the rest of the industry. This steady stream of marketing and media coverage is something Greenpeace calls ad bluster when companies spend more resources like time and money promoting the supposedly good thing they did rather than investing those same resources into actually making a change. Ad bluster works and This ad bluster worked on both consumers and competitors. So for the first time in a very long time, H&M was actually setting the trend when it came to quasi-sustainability, aka greenwashing. And here we are in 2022. Greenwashing is everywhere. It's hard to find a big brand or retailer that isn't actively working to appear to be more environmentally conscious than it truly is. Fortunately, they all use the same tricks, just like they all essentially sell the same trends, fabrics, and clothes. So when you learn to spot it from one retailer, you'll start to recognize it everywhere. You probably already know by now, but I'm just going to go through it anyway. One huge red flag of greenwashing is the use of words that just don't mean very much because they aren't measurable, yet they have power as marketing tools because they sound good to us. They appeal to our basic instinct to do the right thing. These are great words that have been completely robbed of their power by fast fashion. Here are a few examples of these words that have been ruined. One is green, which literally only means something when we're referring to the color. It means nothing when we're using it to describe a product. 
eco-friendly. This is one of those phrases that I just like, I can't even. If someone says it to me, I automatically stop listening because it literally means nothing, but it does sound, you know, pretty nice. Natural, another one that sounds appealing, but means nothing. Definitely being abused in the personal care product realm and with foods. Transparency. This one is a great word, right? And I'm I'm pretty angry that fast fashion has ruined this one because I've, I've always been a big fan of transparency. But unfortunately, H&M and other retailers might claim to have transparency, i.e. visibility within their supply chain, but they don't actually have any visibility into subcontractors, fabric trim suppliers, dye houses, etc. Often for any retailer, any brand, even you know the like the smaller more sustainable brands that are manufacturing overseas, often their greatest visibility into their factories lies within the final steps of manufacturing with no knowledge of anything that came before. So they might know the conditions under which the garment was like sewn and packed up and shipped off in, but they don't know anything about any of the dye houses, the fabric mills, the place where the zippers are made. They don't they don't know any of that, right? And it would be nearly impossible at this point for them to know that. How about conscious? I swear this episode is going to be like an all-time record for the number of times I've said that word. Ultimately, it means very little, but it works its magic on us. Like, gosh, such a clever choice by H&M because it implies that we, the customer, are conscious because we're making these thoughtful choices that make us feel superior to everyone else who is making, I guess, the unconscious choice against the environment. I mean, H&M, clever, so clever. I mean, they're evil geniuses over there, you know? This was such a great word for them to choose for all of their greenwashing collections because people love to feel superior to other people. We already know that. And this one, it just, it works its magic instantly, right? But it means nothing. And you're going to learn more in a few minutes about how little, how unconscious these collections really are from H&M. So put a pin in that. Okay. Recycled. This is another one that H&M throws out there a lot. And sure, it's great to use recycled fabric, but often the fabrics that they're using are blends. And so they can't be recycled again. They're not recyclable. And so this isn't necessarily a product you should be purchasing lightly. Like there is an impact of buying something that can't ever be turned into something else. Fair wage, it's not the same as a living wage. It's super subjective. And while a living wage can be a fair wage, a fair wage doesn't have to be a living wage. A living wage actually implies being able to have a quality of life, to have access to good food, housing, clothing, education, healthcare, and have extra money for savings and other life comforts. Fair wage, it doesn't really mean anything. And of course, what if I told you that H&M and all of the other fast fashion retailers are using sustainable and sustainability incorrectly? In 1987, the United Nations defined sustainability as, quote, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And while, yes, Reducing our use of natural resources and protecting our oceans, soil, air, plants, and animals are all a part of that. 
so is providing a healthy, safe, productive life for all humans. This means eliminating poverty, providing health care, education, equal rights, access to good food, and dignified employment that pays, you guessed it, a living wage. When all humans are thriving, the planet benefits. Unfortunately, fast fashion brands neglect to address the wages and working conditions of all of the humans making, shipping, and selling our clothing. It's workers all across the supply chain, from the fabric mill to the factory that makes the poly bags that everything is shipped in. All of them are being paid very little and working under terrible conditions. Retail workers don't make a living wage and often find themselves the target of harassment and abuse. The same goes for warehouse workers, even a lot of corporate workers working for these fast fashion brands. The deals, deals, deals of fast fashion are made possible by two key elements of the business model that guarantee it can never be sustainable. Overconsumption, selling us as much stuff as possible, as often as possible, and of course, exploitation, including low wages, wage theft, and dangerous slash miserable working conditions. Fast fashion is cheap because someone, lots of people, didn't get paid. And until these fast fashion brands are addressing both the environmental and human impact of the things they're making, they will never be sustainable. They will always be guilty of greenwashing. Another thing that is a common trick of greenwashing that is honestly the most difficult of all of the red flags of greenwashing to spot is potentially fraudulent certifications and data. And earlier this year, an investigation by Quartz revealed that H&M had been knowingly sharing incorrect data that made their so-called conscious collections, there's that word again, appear to be more beneficial for the planet than they actually were. I know you're all just so shocked right now. Yeah. (laughs) I recommend checking out the full article, Quartz Investigation, H&M Showed Bogus Environmental Scores for Its Clothing. I'll share it in the show notes. There are a lot of really great examples in there that will kind of walk you through this. And I'm going to do the best to explain it to you right now. H&M gets its info for environmental scores from the HIG Sustainability Profiles. This data is put together by the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, an industry group run and founded by, who do you you think's running this? I bet you have an idea here. It's retailers and manufacturers, including, and it's a long list, but includes Amazon, Urban Outfitters, Walmart, Kohl's, American Eagle, ASOS, Everlane, and Allbirds. Interestingly enough, this is not a coincidence. I chose these intentionally from the very long list of retailers. Every retailer I just listed has been busted for unethical behavior regarding worker treatment, wage theft, and order cancellations in the wake of the pandemic. These brands have also been engaging in a lot of egregious greenwashing, just like H&M. So, Okay, we're already off to a really bad start here, right? We're going we're talking about H&M and all these other retailers using sustainability data that is created by an organization run by a ton of fast fashion brands and manufacturers. Yeah. 
Yeah, how could that go wrong? Well, it has gone wrong. Yeah, you already knew that was coming. These scores, the HIG sustainability profiles, are created by an organization who has a stake in making their products appeal as sustainable as possible in order to drive sales. This is the equivalent of my cat Hutch handing me a study conducted by Brenda and him that says that Temptations, their favorite brand of treats, are healthier than the grain-free cat food I normally give them at meals and that I should just give them treats at all meals. Like, no, they have the data here. Let's come on. It's the data. Nope, I'm not going to buy it. And this is a very similar situation. So back to these HIG sustainability profiles. They are created ostensibly to give customers a clearer view of the environmental impact of the items they purchase. The profiles take into account how much water and fossil fuels were used to create the materials in a piece of clothing. And this data is compared to more conventional fabrics and methods of producing fabrics. So the goal here is to show that these materials, these techniques are better than how it's been. Here's where it went wrong for H&M. On the website, when a product used 30% more water than its conventional counterpart, which would be bad, it was shown to use 30% less water, appearing better. The claims H&M were making were literally the opposite of the data for those materials from the HIG website. In fact, Quartz took it to a next level and discovered that H&M had hard-coded its website to show only the positive version of this data. Basically, the code would reverse more water to less water. On the day that Quartz did its investigation, of the 630 items on the website that included HIG info, 136 of the items showed incorrect data, making them appear to be better for the planet than they really were. And in fact, they were worse for the planet than the traditional conventional fabrics. Only 11 items showed any reduced impact, 11 of 630. Okay, so 630 minus 136, those are the ones with the incorrect data, minus 11, those are the ones that were better, is 483. About a third of those showed very, very minor reduced impact, really like unimportant, right? The remaining 300 or so after all of that had no difference in impact from conventional methods. They were exactly the same, yet they were all being marketed as more sustainable and transparent. After being called out on all of this, H&M pulled down all of the HIG data from its website. The company is still, however, because this is their thing now, right, using some misleading terminology, like referring to a garment made of a mixture of polyester and recycled cotton as a more sustainable option. We just broke down recycled and all that stuff earlier. You know, it's, it's, it's probably really not. The SAC, that's that Sustainable Apparel Coalition that creates the HIG Index, is reworking the HIG Index scoring after years of criticism. This criticism has been going on long before all of this came out in this court's investigation. It's always 
had some problems. One critic, George Harding Rolls of the Changing Markets Foundation, has been questioning the Hig Index and its validity for years. And he gets down to brass tacks about the whole thing, telling Quartz, quote, the SAC has been providing green paint to paint a very, very dirty industry and eco shade for 10 years and haven't really shown any measurable results in that time. Once again, we have an entire organization that is completely funded by people who have a stake in continuing the fast fashion model for as long as possible. This organization is being used as sort of like the bellwether of the sustainability of something. I mean, just ridiculous, ridiculous. Hearing all of this can be very depressing, infuriating, demoralizing, all the bad things all at once. And in fact, if you'd like to pause right now and just scream at a wall, I welcome that. <laughs> but here's something I want you to think about. Greenwashing wouldn't exist if fast fashion wasn't afraid of losing its customers. They wouldn't be dumping all of these resources into creating an entire coalition with its own scoring system if they weren't seeing the writing on the wall. People want something better. We want something better and we want it now. The problem is this. Rather than taking all that money and time and using it to actually change the industry, to change consumer behaviors, to make better product that lasts longer and doesn't rely on human exploitation and waste of natural resources to create, the industry decided instead to spend it to create fake sustainability indexes and certifications. A whole fake group that has a website and probably has conventions and handouts and probably gives away tote bags and t-shirts at every meeting, right? No matter what all of these fast fashion brands are telling you on their beautiful, neutral toned, with a hint of green, corporate responsibility pages within their website, None of these brands are doing anything sustainable or life-changing. Doing that would mean completely dismantling their business models and starting over. It must be so scary to be a big fast fashion retailer in 2022, to know that the writing is on the wall, that more and more of us are seeing it, and that we are rejecting all of the false promises and bullshit of buying as much stuff as possible as often as possible. They hear us. They know we are coming for them. And they know that we are only going to get louder and more powerful as we share knowledge and welcome more people to the movement. Whew. Okay, after all of that, let's move on. Let's jump into my conversation with Anna about the secondhand industry in Poland. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone? Uh, hello, my name is Anna. I live in Poland. I'm not from here, but I live here since uh, 2010, so pretty long time. Most of my adult life. Um, by profession, I'm a graphic designer, and that's what I basically have been doing. I was just freelancing as a graphic designer. Um, yeah, I really like secondhand fashion and um, vintage fashion as well. And um, really like also mending. So you reached out to me after, I think it was after we had the episode about the secondhand 
um, I guess they're called rag houses here in the United States. I don't know what they call them in Poland, mm-hmm. but it's basically where all of the unwanted clothing is sorted out and most of it is shipped yeah. overseas. And you, you reached out to me and you said, hey, like Poland is one of those places where it comes. Yes, that's correct. I will say, though, that most of our stuff coming from Scandinavia and uh, Great Britain, not mm. from the United States, we do have stuff from United States as well. In fact, starting with at, like in 90s and still to this day, uh, in suburbs, you can still see secondhand stores that are called uh, close from America, basically. <laughs> yeah. It's not surprising. I feel like everywhere I travel in the world, when I go into a vintage store, all of the clothing is American. <laughs> like, if you go to Japan, that's what's in the vintage stores. And Dustin always ends up buying a lot of clothing when we're in Japan. And I'm like, this is weird. Like, it came all the way from the United States to Japan, and now you're taking it back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm, the whole market of secondhand clothes here is not regulated um, at all. So it's impossible to say, like, I tried to find this information. I don't think it's possible to find out where exactly we're getting the clothes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mostly from Britain, but of course, also from some other countries. Uh, what is interesting about Poland is that uh, we have really a lot of secondhand stores. It's absolutely insane. It's on every street. And there is a lot of good stuff there. Like, nobody's complaining about not having good stuff. There is so much stuff. It's just (laughs) (laughs) mind-blowing. And we have some different types of secondhand stores. Some of them are calling themselves vintage stores, even though I've seen stuff there that isn't vintage, for sure. But, like, Mm -hmm. so they have a little bit better selection, let's say. There is somebody clearly um, choosing and picking and some mm-hmm. others are absolutely kind of the deal where you can find almost any kind of clothes. A lot of it is damaged, but I personally actually like that because very often I can fix it and I very often buy stuff that can be fixed. Also, uh, I wanted just to mention prices uh, because yeah. nobody believes me about this <laughs> outside of kind of Central Europe, let's say. Um, but a lot of secondhand stores has um days where you can buy everything for five zloty it's our currency here it's about 1.1 dollars so each thing costs 1.1 dollars for example on some other days you they have like a different deal in the same store that you can buy like a kilo per certain amount of money uh or something like that but it's all very very cheap like sometimes I can't understand how does that even make any financial sense for people who uh, (laughs) run the stores. Right, right. It's it's crazy affordable. And I would say that it's also much less of a taboo here. I never heard Mm -hmm. from anyone here that they would not go to secondhand stores. It's like way more normalized. All kind Mm -hmm. of people go there for different reasons. Some can't afford anything else. This is the thing with with the um, fast fashion also. We have, of course, a lot of brands like Zara, H&M, we have. But a lot of other brands we either don't have here or because of where it's produced and what is the currency of this, it's not actually that cheap for people here, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't really compare 
even cheap fast fashion brands to secondhand. Secondhand will always win. It's much, much cheaper. That's so interesting. I mean, I would say here in the United States, it's sort of a mixed bag. Like when we talked about in a recent episode, you can go to some of the thrift stores here in the U.S. and get Zara clothes that still have the tags on that mm-hmm. Zara sort of dumped on the thrift store. The, and a lot of times they'll be more expensive than buying them in the Zara store or at least the same. But this mm-hmm. is like stuff that Zara doesn't want. And even sometimes when I go to these stores, like I think I think some of the big thrift corporations here in the United States have really tried to cash in on secondhand, and they think what people want is the same fast fashion clothes, but just a little bit cheaper. So they might be charging less than the fast fashion brands were, but like not much less. It's not it's not necessarily cheap. I mean, definitely thrift store prices have gone up in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But I also think part of the reason is because there's such a lucrative industry shipping it out of here. Um, yeah. That maybe it didn't exist like when I was a teenager because I'll, like – Secondhand clothing was so cheap when I was a teenager and a lot of places were by the pound or everything was like one dollar or it was just so inexpensive. And and that's just not the case anymore because I think mm-hmm. there's another way to unload it. So you said – one of the things you said to me was like we – Poland is one of the countries that gets the nice stuff, right? Like you get the graded A things. Y- yes and no. Um Actually, with Britain, it's not the case. Um, oh, so interesting. So what is happening – yeah – so, actually, Poland produced more textile garbage than almost any other country in Europe. And believe this it, is <laughs> strange because like people don't actually buy um, a lot of things per person here, like as many things per person as, for example, in the U.S. or Britain. So, why do we have so much like textile garbage here? And mm-hmm. the thing is that, for example, with the U.K., um, like. Basically, um, we get unsorted stuff. Oh, Um, interesting. Yeah, because it's very, very expensive to pay somebody in Britain to sort the stuff. Mm -hmm. So they sell it for very, very cheap um, here. But Mm -hmm. basically, people sort it themselves here. Again, like I said, a lot of people run secondhand stores. Like, it's um, it's not big companies like Goodwill. It's just somebody who decided to open a store. It's usually like a family business or very small. Maybe somebody has like four stores, you know, but not more than that. And basically, they don't pay themselves for sorting stuff at all. They just get the stuff, they sort it somewhere in their house. And the stuff that is garbage basically just ended up here. Yeah, that sounds about right. I yeah. I think that's an interesting call out that uh, in the UK, it costs too much to pay someone to sort it. So they just offload it. Yeah. Because I've heard from people who I would consider to be reliable sources of information on this industry that a lot of that mm-hmm. happens in the United States, too. Like, yes, there are definitely people doing it here in the U.S. who are not being paid appropriately and they're probably mm-hmm. experiencing wage theft. But also some of the companies that are involved in this whole, I don't know, process of like gathering all this and sorting it and shipping it around are shipping it to Eastern Europe and then for sorting and mm-hmm. then shipping it out from there, sometimes even all the way back to the United States, yeah. which is just so gross, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. 
The same happens basically with UK as well. People sort it here and the best stuff sometimes goes back to the UK to be sold in a secondhand stores there and other stuff ended up here. And we also do sell stuff to African countries. Um, however, because it's Poland, it's not UK or US, they don't want unsorted stuff from here. So basically, mm -hmm. they only want stuff from here that actually was already sorted because they assume for some reason that we don't have as good of a stuff as <laughs> US or UK. I don't know. It's probably true to, to a degree. I'm not sure. But yeah, so we basically sell sorted stuff to African countries mostly. And all of the stuff that is unusable stays here, basically. That's that's interesting. I I could see that there's probably also a little bit of bias towards you know, like you, people think of like the US and the UK as these like wealthy, luxurious countries. And I guess the irony is yeah. that most of the clothes that we're buying and disposing of are not very nice. You know, like I, I felt like when fast fashion was first emerging here in the United States, like, you know, we had basically just Forever 21. And I went to London on a buying trip and I was just shocked by how they had this entire industry of these like cheap and trendy clothes. It was just like store after store after store. And that fast fashion chain that I was working for would actually send us to London so we could go copy Topshop samples and mm -hmm. other fast fashion brands from the high street, like Primark, whatnot. Like, I mean, Primark is way cheaper than just about any fast fashion brand we have here in the US. So it I it's just funny that the, here are these two countries that overconsume all these bad clothes, but like Africa's like, "Hey, listen, before you send us your stuff, Poland, please sort it." You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Which again, it's better, of course. To a degree, I, I agree with them. They should be doing it to everyone, though. You know, absolutely. Like oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm sure there are other reasons why that's happening too. Like, there's a lot of like pressure on the shipping companies to just take it. And I mean, yeah. Like, it, as far as I can tell, based on all of my research, I mean, one, this is not an industry that a lot of people even know about, even though it's mm -hmm. huge. It generates a lot of money. It's definitely using a lot of ships and fuel and manpower, all kinds of stuff, right? It has a major impact on right. the lives of people. There seems to be absolutely no regulation around it. And mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm assuming that's because it's an international trade. So, like, they'd have to get all this cooperation from all these countries. And since most citizens don't know about it, there's no push for that. And so... The, the boats just keep chugging along with more and more of these clothes that are going to get yeah. dumped somewhere. It's, it's really sad. <laughs> and oh, infuriating. Sure. It's yeah. It's very sad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me as a person who's, like, worked in the clothing industry for so long. None, no one that I worked with knew, and, and this myself included, that this is what was happening to all that stuff. That mm -hmm. there were just ships of it all over the world. You know, yeah. I'm sure your average British citizen doesn't know that all their unwanted clothes are going to Poland. Like, they all have this delusion that, like, it's benefiting poor people, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, they're getting this stuff for free, right? Yeah. yeah. 
No, nobody's getting the stuff for free. I assure you that it's being <laughs> sold. However, I like I said, the prices are very, very low here. Like basically, you you can like dress your whole child, you know, for <laughs> I don't even know, like forty dollars. You probably can buy everything, including shoes and winter jackets. Wow, um, I like that. I think yeah, that's, I like that's... that a lot too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, you know, when I post on social media about like quitting fast fashion or like avoiding deals, I always get comments like, yeah, well, I can't resist deals for my kids' clothes or I can't, H&M has the best kids' clothes, that kind of thing. I'm like, wow, if only you guys knew there are so many really nice kids' clothes secondhand right Mm -hmm, now. Like mm -hmm. it's even here, you know, when when my daughter was little, we definitely didn't have money to go buy new, new clothes. But fortunately, in addition to thrifting, there were a lot of consignment stores that were just children's stuff. And it was yeah. all, like, flawless. Like, it had been worn one time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another thing we have here, I don't know, actually, if it exists. And I think it's only in Europe. But there is an app called Vinted, which oh, yeah. basically, yeah, you know about it, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. I use it all the time. People sell all kind of very awesome stuff. I bought Dr. Martens that were like basically almost not even worn, even though I would be okay if they were worn. But, you know, somebody bought it and it was slightly too big and she couldn't really use it. So I bought it from her for like half a price. Oh, yeah. I can't believe how many clothes I am able to buy secondhand that still have the tags on them. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm I'm just never I mean people buy too much stuff. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, you know what? I actually have a crazy story. That was not with tag, but I'm sure I think I even like wrote about it on Instagram one time. One time I never go to the mall, but one of our malls is like by the uh train station and it has like um, condition uh, like air like it's cool air conditioning? There. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I was going from a train station, like, first time in years through the mall, and I saw in H&M this beautiful kind of, like, long brown dress. I don't know, completely, like, shapeless, but I thought, like, oh, how cool would that be for summer, for hot weather? And I thought about it, but I would never, like, go in. I, I don't really do that at all. So I just, like, noticed it and walked away. And we have this mm-hmm. one... Um, company here that I know for sure actually collects stuff only here. Like, it's absolutely local. They collect stuff from people here and they sell it here. Um, And I really like the the stores for that reason, because I know it's not imported. And also you can bring stuff there if you you want to donate. Well, I say donate, but it's for sale, which I'm okay with, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, but about two weeks later i saw the same dress there it didn't have what? a tag i believe it though yeah it didn't have a tag and i don't know for wow. how long it was already in h&m like before i saw it so maybe i don't know but it was there i swear to god i like couldn't believe it i tried it on it was fine so i bought it and next day i was wearing the dress and i went to h&m to see if it's still there like on display and it still was and i Bought it for like less than wow. a dollar or something in in this you know yeah. in the secondhand store. So I was I was shocked how fast somebody bought it, didn't even like it anymore, and donated it somewhere, and somebody else bought it. Crazy. It happens so fast. I mean, I 
I remember like friends of mine talking about using Poshmark like five years ago, but I didn't really know it very well because I'm I'm more of like an, a real life thrifter, at least at that point before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends said, oh, if I go to a store and I see anything, I immediately get out of my phone and go on Poshmark and I usually find it on there right away secondhand. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, like that fast. Yeah. But it is true. It's so true. I like people are buying stuff and not even wearing it sometimes, I think. They're just yeah. like, I'm over it. Or they they're they don't want to return it. I think too. It's like too much work to return it. And some of the stuff is so cheap that it's like, why not just, you know, donate yeah. it? Yeah. I don't know. It's this does not surprise me mm-hmm. at all that you would see that. But it is it, that's also very sad. Yeah, for sure. Um, one negative aspect of secondhands here that I wanted to talk about is that um, maybe that's the case in the U.S. as well, but they kind of trying to do everything just like fast fashion in a way that they, for example, uh. very often they have the sign like new stuff every week, you know, on Wednesday they have mm-hmm. all new stuff. They like get everything out and get all of the new stuff in. And for a while there, I was shocked by this and I was thinking like, well, where the stuff goes? I mean, this is incredibly wasteful. I mean, what if somebody just didn't happen to go that week who could possibly buy it, right? Um, Mm-hmm. However, I find out by talking to somebody who owns a secondhand store that it's not exactly like that. Majority of secondhand stores have uh, a deal, even if it's just one store with one owner, they like cooperate with other ones and they exchange stuff. They don't actually throw it away. Uh, they don't oh. actually get new, new, new stuff that they bought from UK, for example. They get stuff from another store. They just exchange, hoping that people in this neighborhood are going to maybe like find something for themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that's smart. I like that yeah, actually. Yeah. I think that's yeah, great. I really yeah. like that too. And before I was thinking like this is insane. Why are they trying to do it like fast fashion? Like why <laughs> does the, the, there need to be like new stuff every week? But apparently they do that, which is good. Uh, which doesn't I mean, for sure there's still a lot of waste. Um for example, here in Poland we don't really have technology to like any how get rid of the textile waste, you know. Um mm-hmm. and it also costs money to throw away a lot of things. Like, for example, if you have a lot of garbage of any kind, you you pay for somebody to come and get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. people who are... Again, we're talking about, like, a family who is running one store. They're not millionaires, okay? I totally understand why they're doing it. I mean, I don't blame the actual people who own secondhand stores, just to be clear. No. They have no, no. choice. And I think that's good. I think that's really important to call out because I think that... Everybody's frustration with this entire system always ends up being taken out on the people who are selling secondhand. Yeah. And I'm like, those people are working class just like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. No one on an individual level is getting rich off of selling secondhand. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just surviving. Yeah. Um, but yeah, people basically drive somewhere, you know, where people don't leave and like throw stuff from the cars. And once oh, in a while, you can see no. just like like textile garbage just like by the road somewhere you know oh yeah that I mean that is gross I see that kind of stuff here too actually when I was living in Portland there was this sort of like 
I guess it was sort of like an alley. I don't know. It was like a very hidden street by the highway that I would I would walk on to go to the grocery store. And I always called it no the lawless road because mm-hmm. people would dump piles of clothes there and mattresses and furniture and anything that they didn't want to pay to throw away. Yeah. And there were all – like I said, so many clothes there all the time. And I, I was just like, why? Like – now they're just here, and birds are like building nests out of them and stuff. Yeah. You know, it, it's really gross. But I under, I also understand that, like, you know, disposing of your stuff is a burden, and if you're a business, it's probably even harder because yeah. you have so much to yeah. deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I said, I don't blame uh, people who do that per se because I I know very often they probably don't have any other choice. Pandemic mm-hmm. was so hard on on those people. For example, if they had any money, I'm sure they wouldn't just close, you know. But so many places just like shut down uh, because they probably couldn't even yeah. afford their rents, you know. They probably didn't have any savings yeah. or anything. Yeah, no, I believe that. I've seen a lot of businesses like that go under here in the United States too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's interesting talking about like how these stores would kind of adopt this, like the constant newness model of fast fashion because I think that's what people they you know that that's unfortunately how a lot of people's brains have been rewired is to expect new things all the time and I was just thinking the other day about how a lot of the the apps here in the United States that are resale like ThreadUp and Poshmark and Depop and I think we have Vinted here but it's a lot smaller Mercari Mm -hmm. all of those they send constant emails and push notifications about new stuff, about deals, trying to remind you that you liked something, it's still there, or like it'll be like, hey, someone else made an offer on this, you better get it really fast. Mm-hmm. Like just constantly like, hey, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Yeah. And it's it's a real turnoff to me. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> For sure, yeah. <laughs> because it's so push it's so pushy and it's so like I, I I think that that is, like, another important thing for all of us to keep in mind is, like, often a lot of these secondhand platforms, at least, I'm not talking about individual secondhand sellers, but the big platforms are not in, in it for sustainability. They're not in it to change people's habits and shopping. They're in it to make money. Yeah. And so true. they want you to go shopping all the time, right? And I think that they've made it really easy for some people to transition from over-consuming fast fashion to over-consuming secondhand. Mm-hmm. Um, and they take business away from all these individual shops, like in your neighborhood, you yeah. know? Yeah, I can tell you that I am guilty of that myself. I'm, I'm buying secondhand. Again, I'm very privileged because I'm a very, very common size. Like, I can find mm-hmm. almost anything for myself. Like, I understand it's not like that for all of the people. Um but for me, it's really difficult to stop. Like, I originally was buying in secondhand stores for financial reasons, not for sustainability. And I'm I'm basically in the habit of doing this for the last probably 11 years or something like that. And I it never even comes like comes to my head that I should go somewhere else, like to to buy new stuff. It's just not a problem. It's very available for me. And like I said, the size is also um, for sure very important. I can always find something um and but I'm absolutely I'm guilty of that I'm buy I am buying too much stuff because 
again, like in my head, it's okay because it's secondhand. <laughs> I'm trying not to do that. <laughs> I actually got extremely angry because one of the bloggers I was mm, following on Instagram, I decided on the beginning of this year that I'm going to try to like artificially <laughs> um, somehow try to control how much I buy, right? So I decided to only buy like um, one or two things a month or whatever, or for example, make a list of what I actually need when I feel like something is missing from the wardrobe and then like specifically mm-hmm. look for that thing, you know? So, but for the first three months of this year, I decided to not buy anything, just kind of calm down, you know, a little bit break out of this habit of always like looking for something new. Well, new for me. And one of the bloggers I was following, she said, she was just pushing this message that you don't need to be on a buying ban. You just need to, you know, buy this and this, and then your wardrobe is going to be complete. And I was like, no, some people really need to, like, check their, you know, their behavior. They really need a break. Yeah, <laughs> they really do, too. I mean, I think I think that's, int- that's really important because I, I understand that, you know, being an influencer, a content creator is a job, right? And... For a lot of people, like the only way you're going to get paid yes, is by trying to sell you know, stuff, connecting with brands, mm. right? Yeah, unfortunately, right. And so, I see a lot of that in like the sustainability influence space. That's sort of like, oh, what you need to do is buy these things, yeah, right. And I understand it; like it's a job, and I can cancel out the noise there, and I don't have like any ill will towards yeah them. But unfortunately, then a lot of people reach out to me asking me what they should buy, and I'm like, what's well, mm-hmm. just like only buy things you really like and don't buy very much and and then they're like but like what should i buy and i'm like that's not my job (laughs) you know i don't know i don't know what you should buy i don't know what you do in your spare time or like what you need i don't know what's in your closet i also like don't really want to come and tell you what to wear i want you to figure it out on your own but it is it is interesting like i think that uh we're seeing a lot of people not change their habits in terms of impulse shopping. Yeah. Um, but they're directing it into secondhand. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder, like, what's are they gonna what are they gonna do with all the stuff that they're over consuming that's secondhand? Well, I can tell you what they're gonna do. They have like a super messy, very small apartment. That's what I have. <laughs> <laughs> I have like four or five like literally stuff I could wear to Met Gala. Like do I have to say I will never wow, be invited? Wow, like, jealous. I will never be invited, though, so. And I don't really go anywhere. <laughs> but I like fancy stuff, yeah. you know, so I, sometimes I buy it and so like, I have all of this stuff. Uh, but, you know, it's only that many times you can get married in your lifetime, for example, you know. I don't know. My mom's been married seven times, so I think, like, if everybody could just do their do their share and get married <laughs> seven times, there would be plenty of weddings for us to get dressed up yeah, on. I'm kidding. I Please can, don't do that. But. Yeah. I could easily have like four or five more weddings, no problem, without even wow. buying anything. I feel like that's such an American thing to have a lot of like vow renewals so you have a chance to wear a dress again. Uh, I would say that I did some, I kind of had like just a total meltdown at the beginning of the pandemic because I lost my job and I felt like my whole life was over. Mm-hmm. And so all of my like, fancy clothes I sold on Poshmark mm-hmm. so I have literally not one fancy thing to wear like I would have to show up in someone's wedding and just like what I wear to work <laughs> like I have no fancy clothes anymore which is is weird but like I guess the good news is no one has invited me to anything fancy so Aww. I'm fine <laughs> but I just seriously was like well 
this is the end of my life. I'll never do anything fancy again. Oh my God. It. Like, it, that's no. where my I know it was very depressing, very depressing time for me. Um, I definitely did not see all this stuff happening. You know what? Um, what we do, like me and my partner, we sometimes buy super cheap uh, tickets to opera. Oh. <laughs> you know, sometimes they sell stuff that they didn't sell like two days before the, the concert. And we uh -huh. go there. And even though we sit really far away from the stage, I'm still like <laughs> full on like bowl gown. I don't care. Like gloves, everything. <laughs> wow. I love that. That's such a good idea. Yeah. I I think yeah. uh, we just need to make those reasons, right, to go do those things. Because I think oh, like for, for me, sure. getting dressed up and doing something like that is good for my mental health. But like I said, at that point, I was like, well, it's all over. Very, very yeah. dark place um, back then. But uh I haven't actually seen anything good secondhand yet. It's fancy anyway. So, you know, mm. it's not time for me to go some do something fancy yet, I guess. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. 
check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. So, you know, we moved across the country to Texas earlier this year, and for mm-hmm. me, my clothes were not much of a burden because I had over the years really pared down and rehomed a lot of my stuff. But man, we have a lot of house stuff because we're such thrifters. And I mm-hmm. felt like the full burden of all of our belongings, like in a way that I never had before because I was like, we're not going to donate any of this to the Goodwill. You know, we're not going to throw any of this in the trash. It was really, really stressful um, and made me think a lot more about like, wow, why – we can't just buy stuff at the thrift store because it's cute anymore, you know, just because we lo- we yeah, couldn't believe we saw it. Great. Yeah. Like, we'd just be like, yeah. oh, I can't believe we saw this. We should buy it. And then get it home and it would be like, why did you buy that game? We're never going to play that game. Or, like, we already have plenty mm-hmm. of mugs. Like, we have a hundred mugs easily, coffee mugs in our house. Same here. Same here. <laughs> and that's how you know someone's a <laughs> thrifter. Go open their cabinets, yep. right? Every time we have people over, like, a party... I just put out all of the coffee mugs for people to drink from. Yeah. I actually have, like, I don't know, maybe 15, like, d- specifically Halloween-themed mugs. <laughs> that makes sense. thrift stores. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense for me. Yeah. I mean, I, when I first moved in with Dustin, he showed up with a box, and all that was written on it was dumb mugs. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Oh, no, because I already have so many. So every time I would see, like, a cute mug, I'd be like, well, I I need a coffee mug, you know? But we have so many. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We gave a bunch of them to my daughter, but there's still just too many. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
I can totally relate to all of what you just said. We have a lot of secondhand stores also with stuff for for home. And I'm also guilty for of buying stuff that we really don't need. And we have such a tiny apartment. This is not even funny. I mean, it's just all, you know. Last time I had like this kind of mental breakdown about how much stuff we have is when I tried after last uh I mean before Christmas last year I guess I tried to pack all of the Halloween stuff like I was not able to find place to put it like <laughs> I literally had so much Halloween decorations I didn't have place to actually put it until next year you know right, so some of this right. actually still around <laughs> yeah we had to get a storage unit here in Texas because there really aren't closets in our house and it's not even like I have that much Halloween or Christmas decorations but like they had to go there Mm -hmm. but what we really had a lot of were chairs (laughs) because I feel like I would always find them on the side of the road and really like them so we just had a lot of chairs (laughs) like lots of chairs not a lot of other furniture and I was like well we can't get rid of these five chairs like they're they're great so they're all in storage right now but our storage unit is basically chairs and decorations. That's it. There's no clothes there or yeah. anything like that. It's just, I, mm-hmm. it, it is, I think that like, I'm not an expert in the area of like home goods and whatnot, but I can see how all of us thrifters have a really hard time leaving stuff at the thrift store, you know? Yeah. Another thing I wanted to mention actually is that, um, I think I also sent it to you an email that I for a while volunteered for this place where it was like a swap mm. uh, I guess event I don't know how to call it it's but it was like open every day basically okay um so it's a place where you can bring stuff you pay very little money to just come in even if you brought stuff we had to like charge people a little bit of money it was like literally under a dollar um and then you could take as much stuff as you wanted from it um unfortunately like pandemic pretty much kind of closed that deal but i hope that can still exist in the future here as well and because of that i have so much experience of like seeing what kind of stuff people have here like because people Mm -hmm. would bring like boxes and boxes of and uh so many I mean, sometimes we had very unpleasant situations where somebody would like bring two t-shirts, but then get so much stuff, like several bags. Some of the people with whom I was volunteering there was angry about it. At the same time, we never had shortage of uh, clothes. Nothing else. We had to like really store it somewhere because we Mm -hmm. couldn't put all of it out because there was no space. So I was like, well, who cares that they took two, two full bags? I mean, we we have so much stuff, really. I mean, I don't really care even if they sell it somewhere. I, I actually have nothing against that at all. Hopefully they're going to, like, wash it and stuff, you know, which mm-hmm. we didn't do there. Right, We right. did not do anything with it. We would just put it on the shelves. What we would do, we would see what people brought. And if they brought something that was, like, absolutely damaged, we would just give it to them back immediately. We would not take it. Mm-hmm. Um so we didn't really get much of a, like actual garbage, thanks God. But uh, but you know, I I was never like even angry about this. But that would sometimes happen when somebody was getting so much stuff and like all different sizes that you would for sure know they they're probably gonna sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, it's okay. Uh, but very often, like people would bring so much 
so many things and it would all be in a very good condition because they, you know, sometimes you try to, for example, if somebody's moving, sometimes they're trying to sell it. They probably can't in a short time. And then they're like, well, you know, if we need to leave anyway. So they just bring it. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of very, very good clothes. And that was basically free. Like you you pay for entering the the facility a little bit. But other than that, we didn't charge for anything. So I... I really like that system. I think this is where the future lies for like second hand. Well, not even second hand. Well, second hand, but just not not selling. Is to try to create communities, like local communities where people who bring stuff are living in the same city where mm-hmm. people are going to get stuff. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Here in the United States, most of the thrifting economy has been like corporatized so you know they're like the big thrift chains like goodwill and uh value village and whatnot like there are a lot of things that they won't accept because they don't want to assume the liability of selling it like if they sell you something and it breaks or hurts you they don't want to be sued right and so i a lot of stuff goes to the landfill because those places won't accept it that people Mm -hmm. in your neighborhood in your life would love to have would be grateful like thank you for this crib you know or thank you for these crutches and these are things that like those organizations won't take and i -hmm. think it would be great if we could have more in real life swaps like that like i love the idea of having a store in your neighborhood where people can come and like basically swap their things you know it was great um, I'm sure here in the United States that with all of our laws around like liability, it would be like a whole complicated thing and then it would get shut down or something. I don't know. It's like mm. sometimes sometimes our laws here really protect us and sometimes they like shoot us in the foot, I would say, around like safety yeah. and stuff like that. But I, I do agree like you know, here we have buy nothing groups and my the one from my neighborhood is really thriving and lively. And I see people rehoming everything from like I bought – that like three packages of this food and I don't like it who wants it to like do you want some baby clothes or a sewing machine or you know like I have all these extra COVID tests like stuff like that that thrift stores wouldn't mm-hmm. take but like people in the neighborhood are like yes I'm coming right now let's that's how I got rid of all my moving boxes when I got here mm-hmm. I just people were coming and taking like stacks of them at a time and it was great yeah. Yeah. So I love the idea of a little like real life place where people could do that. My friend Chris Christine, she lives in Portland, and she's been on the show before. She's uh, a vintage seller. She and some sellers in Portland have been doing a thing where they set up downtown and unhoused people can come and get like free coats and sweaters and socks and shoes and pants. And she was telling me that mm-hmm. she now keeps her eye out when she's outsourcing for those things to just put aside to be able to give to those yeah. people, which I love yeah. too. Yeah. In that place, we also had one day when uh, people who are um, cannot pay even the small fee can come. And all kind of people, clearly some of them were, you know, how did you call it? Unhoused? Mm-hmm. Um, unhoused, yeah. Yeah, unhoused would come and they don't have to pay them, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only did it on a separate day because... Believe it or not, people can be very, like, other people can be very rude to those people, for real. They can, like, act like they don't want them there, you know? Ugh. Uh, so we did it on a separated day because of that, so they feel comfortable, so nobody's gonna, like, go around telling them to leave, you know? 
yeah, yeah. I yeah. I'm and not they, surprised that they, people are rude. <laughs> yeah, but because this way they could come and like just in peace, there would be like almost mm. nobody else there. They could like try on stuff, you know, pick whatever they want, um, and leave. That's awesome. Was, I th- I thought it was a good idea too. Yeah, I definitely yeah. want to see more of that in the world. Yeah, I also uh, I got so much stuff for myself when I was volunteering there. You cannot imagine what kind of stuff I have now. I have like a <laughs> co- coats, like a winter coats from sixties in the perfect condition because this one guy, um, well, kind of old man, really, like maybe seventy <laughs> something, brought a lot of things uh, of his wife who who died a couple of years ago, and it was all my size. So I got oh, no. so many coats. <laughs> they were so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be dangerous for me too i get it <laughs> yeah yeah for sure for sure like but, sometimes i have problems paying bills but then i have like this vintage clothes that is like high like top you know brands you know <laughs> just from this place oh yeah totally i mean dustin and i have had conversations like that too like that's how you know you're a hipster if you like can't, can't really don't have health insurance but you have like a really amazing vintage wardrobe yeah yeah oh god this whole this whole thing about no insurance in the u.s is just like mind-blowing for me like i'm poor but if something happens to me i i'm gonna get health care like for free Oh, it's yeah. free. No, it's it's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, I have always like I've been basically like forced to take jobs just so I could have insurance because I have an autoimmune yeah. disease. And uh, one of the jobs I worked for did not offer health insurance, which like in retrospect is just so cruel and messed up because they had the money for it. And so I had mm-hmm. to get this like government health insurance that was very expensive uh, really, really expensive. And then my daughter had some health problems and was hospitalized. And the, mm-hmm. the insurance covered almost none of it. And I'm still paying oh, wow. those medical bills like five years <gasps> later. No. It was, I thought we were going to have to declare bankruptcy. It was really, really scary. And like, I would say like, I have a decent, I had a decent job, you know? Yeah. Um, it was, it was really, really bad. Uh, and like, like, I know that I'm privileged in that like, I've been able to, except for, the years of 2020 to most of 2021, uh, I've been able to like get jobs, you know? So mm-hmm. uh, it was, it was really scary. Uh, and that is just like how it works here. It's really messed up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can't imagine. <sighs> yeah. My partner yeah. is um, from the U S and sometimes we're talking about moving there and this is why we probably never will. <laughs> I don't blame you. Um, I wouldn't do it. If I could go live somewhere else that had insurance, I would move right away. Yeah, because we also have a kid, and she's not having that many problems, but she was actually also hospitalized a couple of weeks ago for asthma. Oh, no. Uh, and Yeah, it's fine. I don't know. She just suddenly got asthma. I guess now she's going to have it. <laughs> That's how um, it happens. Yeah, we were in a hospital. Yeah, yeah, we were in a hospital for a couple of days, and here it that cost me nothing. Wow. Whereas here, you would be worrying about how you're going to pay those bills. Yeah. For a long time. You'd be very stressed about it. That's just like how it is here. I feel like you've done a really great job of explaining everything there and how different it is. Um, And I just think like, I, 
I don't know, like, in Poland, do you have, like, huge chains of thrift stores like we do here in the United States, or are they more independent? Um, no, I don't think we do. We have one chain for sure that is um, kind of everywhere in every th- city, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not sure if it's not franchise and if it's not, like, still... I actually don't know. I didn't check that. Uh, but most of them are not like that. Most of them are just one store. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, for example, I would say like for, for anyone who wants to go to Europe and who's into thrifting, please come to Poland. This is great. You know, just don't bring <laughs> anything with you. Buy everything here if you, if you feel like doing that, of course. <laughs> I mean, you're kind of making but me want to come for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's also like really, really pretty here. Like mm-hmm. all the my my city uh, was never bombed during Second World War, so everything here is like it was before. All of the architecture is here. We have like a castle in the middle of the city, for example. Wow, um, cool. Yeah, with a with a dragon bones in them. Like what? They slay dragon once upon a time. Yeah, it's it's a funny story. I think it's collection of like different animals' bones, including whales' ribs. <laughs> Somebody will just collect it. <laughs> it's so strange. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, I think I do think that that is like one of the big difference big differences, and I think it, it's what makes our thrift system here in the United States like not as sustainable. And sort of, like, responsible as it could be because, like, they've all been so corporatized. Like, there are some independent thrift stores, but not as many as there used to be. And so there's so – I don't know. Just a lot of stuff is just not even being presented to customers. It's just immediately being loaded up and going away because Mm -hmm. there are all these other channels in which they get rid of stuff that are far more lucrative for them. Um, well, I guess everybody, let me know when everyone wants to go to Poland. We'll organize a trip. <laughs> I want to see the oh, dragon yeah, bones. I'm so happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Anna. It was so fun to get to talk to you, sort of in real life, pretty close to in real life. Sure. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com.
Com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicwear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram. Thanks again to Anna, who has been a regular contributor to the Close Horse community for years now for taking the time to talk to me. It meant a lot. It felt so good to have a conversation with her because I have been knowing her on the internet for so long now. Thank you, Anna. Dustin and I are already talking about going to Poland next year. Who, 
who, which one of you wants to join us? All of you? I don't know. Should we run a bus? I'm not sure. In the meantime, you can find Anna on Instagram as at the period, which period of period, which would, which I will share in the show notes, where she shares all kinds of amazing outfits and illustrations. She is a woman of many incredible talents. So go give her a follow. That's all for today. It's time to turn the air conditioning back on in our house. It is once again more than 100 degrees in Austin, Texas today. I will be back two weeks from now. I'm taking next weekend off because this Wednesday, August 10th, is my birthday. And while I will have the unfortunate pleasure of flying home from a business trip on my birthday, Dustin and I are taking the RV down to the Gulf of Mexico next weekend to celebrate and relax and see something new. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing and this episode wasn't too long, (laughs) please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support my work around here, please check out patreon.com slash close horse podcast. And really the most important thing you can do, the most helpful, most supportive thing is to share this show with friends or other people in your life. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. And I'll talk to you all soon. Bye.